Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Arthur Gordon is one of my favorite inspirational writers. And he tells about the time that his wife Pam had the flu. Wanting to be nice and try to get her some peace and quiet, he decided to get the kids and go for a ride that Sunday afternoon. Get them out of the house for just a little while. And so he bundled them all up. They headed out and they went down one of these country roads there in Georgia until finally he saw an old cemetery. He decided that would be a fun place to go and Pulled off to the side and let the kids run around and have a game. Everybody trying to find the oldest um, headstone. And the kids thought this was great. And they got out and they started running around. Here's one 1885. That's nothing. Here's 1880, uh, 1868. Well, and that's nothing. Here's one 1812. Man, they were running all over looking for the different headstones and just having a great time. Arthur was leaning against a tree. He looked over and there was a headstone by him. And he read it and it said, Beloved wife and mother, died of a fever, 1865. He saw that there was writing down lower on the headstone. He couldn't read it. It was weathered. He figured it must be some scripture. He knelt down beside it and began to rub on it and look closer and realized... No, it wasn't a scripture. It was actually a saying. And when he read closer, what it said was, Ever she sought the best. Ever she found it. He thought for a moment the date, 1865. It was the end of the Civil War. She had just lived through one of the most difficult times in the history of our country where everybody lost somebody that they loved. Husbands, fathers, brothers, friends. Everybody lost somebody. She lived in Georgia. Sherman had had his march to the sea, coming all the way from Atlanta down to Savannah, scorched earth policy, burning everything in his way. No, she had lived through the most difficult of days 
And what an interesting statement that her family would choose to write. Ever she sought the best, ever she found it. That's a hard thing to do. To be looking for the best in all situations. To look for the best in all people. Well, that's hard to do. Ever she sought the best, ever she found it. You know, I'm not sure that right now you and I are living in a culture, a society that is looking for the best in all circumstances or in all people. Right now we are living in a society in a time when we seem to be so divided and things seem to be so divisive. We are so pulled apart on so many different issues. Race, religion, sexual orientation, politics. It's a divisive time. And I'm not sure we're looking for the best. You know, ten years ago, I had never heard of a thing called fake news. You know? But there is such a thing as fake news. And what I've discovered is if there's fake news, I guarantee it's not a news story that came out to praise somebody. It's going to be something mean and derogatory and dismissive. That will be the news story. Right now, you and I are living with an amazing thing called social media. It's changing the world. Two billion people a week are on social media. Facebook alone. And yet you go on Facebook and you read how many mean things are being said about one another. You look at Twitter, Instagram, you, you Snapchat, how much people are calling each other names and saying mean and nasty things. We live in what's called cyberspace. And the thing about cyberspace is it says Everyone in the world is connected. And there are no rules. No one to police it. No one to say what is right and wrong and what you can do. And you look at what is being said in cyberspace. Ten years ago, we never heard of cyberbullying. And yet you look at what happens to so many kids... And how people pile on, regardless of the social media way, to say things that are demeaning to the point that we have young people taking their own lives. We're living in an interesting time. And that's why this morning I want to continue on with this sermon series, Telling the Story. Because we have said, and I think that Thomas Friedman has well documented, that this is an unprecedented time in history that the rate of change is faster than ever before. And there are so many inventions because of technology that you and I really don't know the ramifications of yet. And all these things are out there and happening. And if we're not careful, we forget who we are. We forget our values and the things that matter. And so we want to tell the stories. This year we want to spend a year of just trying to look at the stories of our faith so that you and I go back and remember what are the things we believe, we ascribe to, what are the values that matter. We want to remember our story, 
How has God moved in our lives? How do we relate to one another? What is our story? What is God's story? So that you and I can deal with this ever-changing time. Because on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting. I'm grateful I get to be alive at this time in history because the inventions are so amazing and the things that are happening are so exciting. But you have to somehow figure out in the midst of this world, what are the values? Because even though the world is changing how you live, the way we relate to one another, the struggles that we have in families, that hadn't changed in more than 3,000 years. They're still the same. All you got to do is go back and look at the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is about a family that struggles 3,000 years ago. A family that is struggling. And when we look at the struggles, we will see they're the struggles of us today. The scene that, that Wendy was reading to us this morning, to me it's one of the most powerful scenes in the Bible. For Joseph is in Egypt and in power and his brothers who sold him into slavery now stand before him unsuspecting and you're about to have this unexpected family reunion. You remember the story. It's about Jacob, one of the patriarchs. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the story of Jacob is about how he has two wives, Rachel and Leah, they each have a handmaid, Bilpha and Zilpah. And it is through these four women that in the end, Jacob winds up having 12 sons and one daughter. He has this family. But the son that he loves the most is Joseph. Because his wife, Rachel, is the one that he loved the most. And in the end, she could not have children for years and years and finally she conceived in his older age and she has a son and they name him Joseph. And then years would go by and she would conceive again and now she would have another son, Benjamin, but she would die in childbirth of Benjamin. And now he's lost his wife and Jacob loves Joseph more than all his other children. And he shows it plainly. He gets him a coat of many colors. You've seen the Broadway production. Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat. That really is about the story of Joseph. He gets his coat of many colors. And he is a snotty 17-year-old who rubs it in the face of his brothers. Daddy loves me the most. And he goes out and spies on his brothers and brings reports back to daddy, speaking poorly of them, telling on them. No, he is not a nice brother. Well, the brothers get all upset about it and they don't like Joseph and they're talking about him. And then Joseph has a dream. One day, all of you are going to bow down to me. That's it. That's a straw that breaks the camel's back. The brothers decide it's time to get rid of him, decide to kill him. But in the meantime, when they decide to do this, along comes a Midianite caravan and they're heading down to Egypt. They sell Joseph to the Midianites and then they take his coat, they go and kill an animal, put blood on it and take it home and say, Daddy, wild animals have eaten your son Joseph. Here is his coat. And Jacob grieves and grieves. The son that he loved is dead. So he thinks. Joseph in the meantime is on his way down to Egypt. He gets down to Egypt and he's sold to Potiphar 
who is a captain in the Egyptian army. Joseph makes the best of his situation. He rises up to the ranks and soon he's running the household. But then Potiphar's wife sets her eyes on Joseph and she wants to have him. And Joseph says no. So then she accuses him of trying to rape her. And in the end, Potiphar has him thrown into jail. He was innocent. And now he is in prison. And he starts in prison trying to be the best he can be till he rises up and he's soon running the prison on the inside. And along comes two new prisoners. It's the Pharaoh's butler and the Pharaoh's banker. And while in prison, they both have a dream and they come to Joseph and hear his dream and Joseph interprets and he tells the, the butler, what this means is you're going to be lifted up and the Pharaoh's going to remember you and you're going home. And it was such a good interpretation, the baker says, and here's my dream. And Joseph listens and says, what your dream means is you're about to be hung. And that's exactly what happens. The baker is hung and the butler is remembered and he goes back to serve the Pharaoh. Joseph says, don't forget me. He does. He gets back until the Pharaoh has a dream, a dream about these seven fat calves, cows down in the Nile River. And then along come these seven really skinny cows and they eat the fat cows and they're still skinny. And he goes to the Pharaoh to ask, the Pharaoh is trying to interpret what does this dream mean? And the butler says, I know someone who can interpret dreams and they bring Joseph. And Joseph says, what it means is we're going to have seven fat years. We're going to get lots of grain. It's going to be very successful And then we're going to have seven very lean years. And those lean years are going to be really bad. Then the Pharaoh says, I think I'm going to make you second in charge and we'll do whatever you say. And now Joseph is lifted up and given great power and wealth. And he's given a wife and soon he has children. And he gathers the grain for seven years into the barns. And then the heavens shut and the famine comes. Two years into it, everybody is hungry. Jacob is there in the promised land and he says to his boys, there is food down in Egypt. We need to send someone to get food. And so the brothers go and they come and they stand before Joseph. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. That's the scene we were reading about this morning. What is Joseph going to decide to do? Is he going to demand justice or is he going to choose family? It's what I want us to think about this morning. And there's three things that I want to say. First of all, Joseph's struggles started with the family. A family that was fighting so much with each other because Jacob showed favoritism. He made it so plain. I loved Rachel, your mother, the most. And I love you the most. And when a parent makes it clear that they love one child or grandchild more than any other, you plant the seeds to tear your family apart. Moms, dads, grandparents, when you and I show favoritism and love one more than all the others, You're doing something to people's soul. It will affect them and you tear the family apart. 
Somehow we seem to think that there is a limited amount of love. And the truth is there's enough love for all. And it's only when everybody feels special and loved that you really have family. Joseph, he rubbed their faces in it. The brothers, they felt jealous and angry and insecure. And what do you do when you feel insecure? You strike out and hurt people. And then what happens? You feel guilty. And so then you strike out and hurt people. And the cycle goes on and on. Here they were calling each other names. It's one of the things that disturbs me right now about, about our culture. We seem to believe it is okay to disparage people and call each other names. It is not okay. This past week, Marsha and I had the opportunity to be babysitting our grandkids. Paul and Krista, they headed out of town to a a medical conference, and they were going to be gone for a number of days. And the kids, of course, still had to go to school. Um, Cameron and Olivia, they're five and eight. And so we went up to go live in their home and get the kids to school and pick them up and have dinner and put them to bed. You know, it's different when you're a grandparent and you just kind of stroll in and have a good time and kiss them goodnight. No, when you're doing everything, boy, that's, that's a whole different story. And we were in the midst of doing. And what we saw was these kids, I mean, they really do love each other. They play well together. But they are five and eight. And there would be those times they were playing and they start roughhousing and somebody gets hurt. And when they get hurt, boy, then they start calling each other names and they go at it. And someone wants to take a toy and then they start to fight. As soon as they did, we would sit them down and say, wait a minute. We don't talk to each other like that. We do not say those things. I know your mom and dad don't let you. You're not going to say those things. And as soon as we addressed it, within minutes, they'd be back playing together again. It's when you don't address it and you let people call names and you speak poorly of one another. You plant the seeds to be torn apart. When our children were growing up, they're now in mid-30s, late-30s. We had a rule in our house. You may not call your brother or your sister names. You cannot call them dumb or say you're stupid. You cannot say you're slow, you're ugly. No, no, there were penalties for that. We will not call each other names. They were not allowed to stand in front of the mirror and call themselves names. I'm dumb. I'm ugly. No, that's not acceptable either. And we did not call them names and tried not to embarrass them in front of their friends or in front of our friends, but to give them off to the side to say, we don't say those things. We will not talk about each other that way. We live in a culture where right now it is okay to call each other names. And when we do that, we start tearing ourselves apart and creating a society where it is divisive. Joseph and his brothers, there was jealousy, insecurity, anger, name-calling. It is no wonder that he got sold into slavery. We can't change what everybody else does. But we, as the followers of Christ, we can do better than that. Secondly, it seems to me that when you look at the story, what you realize is that 
it took a lot of courage, a lot of strength for Joseph to choose to be happy in all these circumstances. It would have been so much easier to focus on the bitterness and the anger and how unfair life had been. And what you find is Joseph, when he gets thrown into a, a slavery, he tries to make the best of it and he rises up to be the head of the household. When he gets thrown into prison, he makes the tough decision, I'm going to do the best I can and he's doing that in prison. And the opportunity comes for him to be now in power and now his brothers come before him. And what is he going to choose? What is he going to choose to do? To be able to forgive. To be able to forgive in those kinds of moments. To let the past go. That's a hard thing to do. Ever she sought the best. Ever she found it. To seek the best when you've been treated so unfairly, when you've been treated so poorly, to be able to forgive and to let the past go, that's a hard thing. Whenever you and I talk about forgiveness, you know, one of the things we're clear about and we say, to say you forgive somebody does not mean that what they did doesn't matter. That what you did when you said that or you did that and you hurt me, it does matter. If I choose to forgive you, what I'm saying is I give up the right to get even. What you did mattered. And I deserve justice. But I choose to give up the right to get even. It's not that what you did doesn't matter. It did. But I'm going to let the past go. That's a choice that we can make. I mean, we have learned, we've talked about it before and said that hating someone is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else dies. We know it doesn't work. It takes strength and courage to let the past go. That's what Joseph was confronted with. How am I going to deal with this? Not long ago, I was down in Florida I was down there for West Path. That's the name of our general board of pensions in the Methodist Church. You know, we have 100,000 participants. We manage over $20 billion. It's actually one of the largest pension programs in America. And there's about 30 of us on the board of directors. We rotate every four years. You can serve three quadrennium. I've been on the board now for 10 years. And one of the nice things about being on the board is you really get to know people as the years go by. People from all over the country come. You see them several times a year, and you make new friends as you do the business of the board. One of those that I've gotten to know is Grace Southern. He's a United Methodist minister over on the East Coast. And, you know, he is just very articulate and insightful and, and a lot of fun. And I, I've come to appreciate Grace through the years. And he did a devotional for our board seven or eight years ago now that I've always remembered. He, he tells about when he and his wife first got married... They both loved dogs, and they decided they wanted to get a dog. And he loved hunting dogs and dogs that were outside dogs, and she loved inside dogs, and they saw there was a potential conflict here right off the bat in their marriage, and so they discussed it, and they found a way to settle it. They got an inside dog. <laughs> so, so they got a dog, and the dog she wanted was a full-size poodle. 
and they named this dog Fifi. And he said, I don't know how it happened, but we got into the habit that whenever I came home from work, it was my job to take Fifi for a walk every day so Fifi could do her business. And he said, I don't know how that happened, but that's what happened. And he he said, you know, I, I live in a community where people love to jog and, and, and they, they walk and they bike and they skateboard. And he said, that makes it nice. You get to see lots of people. But, but Gray likes to be um, green. He said, I believe in recycling. And so one of the things he decided to do was he, he decided to take that orange bag that the newspaper came in every day and to use that as the bag to pick up Fifi's stuff. Whenever they'd go walking and Fifi would do her thing, he'd pick up her stuff in his orange bag and, and be able to throw it away. And that way he felt like he was helping to recycle. Well, he said one day he took Fifi out and it was in the evening and they were walking. It was a beautiful afternoon. And he said we hadn't gone far and Fifi did her thing. He said I picked it up and got it in my little bag, tied a knot on it. But I didn't want to go home. It was still so beautiful. He said I just decided to keep on walking. And he said, I'm walking along along on a sidewalk with Fifi, and I found myself just whistling. And soon I was kind of just spinning around, you know. (laughs) And and he said, you know, it must have looked pretty valuable. I don't know, you know, what I was holding on to in here. And he, he said, as I'm going down the sidewalk, he said, I could tell someone was coming up behind me. You can kind of get that feeling. And he said, I just kind of sensed it, so I stepped off the sidewalk with Fifi. And sure enough, here came a, a cyclist coming by. And just as they came by, they suddenly grabbed the sack out of my hand and rode off real fast. He said, I started hollering, stop, thief, bring it back. He said, then I thought about what he had just stolen. And I thought, boy, is he going to be surprised when he opens that bag up? He said, actually, it made the walk a lot nicer now that I'd gotten rid of that thing. And he said, as I was walking Fifi, it suddenly hit me, that's life. How often in life we're carrying a lot of stuff that we probably need to let go of. But we want to hold on to it. Stop. Bring it back. We want to hold on to it. And what we need to do is let it go. And when you let it go, it makes the walk through life so much better. What do you have that you need to let go of? What's the stuff in the past that you need to let go of? Joseph was confronting his brothers so much being sold into slavery and thrown into prison, now living in Egypt, away from his father for more than 20 years. It would have been easy to demand justice. Am I going to let go of it? Because the only way you have family is you've got to let go of some things in the past. And so third... When you look at Joseph, you see he really has a big choice to make. Is it forgiveness or justice? Is it going to be retaliation or family? And Joseph chooses family. 
His brothers are so surprised when he reveals himself. And he said, I know that you meant it for evil, but God has used it for good. This famine's just getting going. We got five more years to go. Go get daddy and bring him down to Egypt. Bring your wives and your children and all your livestock. I'll take care of you. He chose to let the past go and he's going to choose family to offer forgiveness. It's the only way you get family. And you know, it's easier to do when you step and you look back and you kind of get the big picture. When you look at your life in the light of eternity, it's easier to look at life and go, what really matters? In the moment, we sometimes forget our values and who we are because of the anger and the bitterness and the hurt, justifiably so, it's not till you stop and you look at the big picture that you remember. What do you really want? What really matters? And you make a choice for something more in the light of eternity? This afternoon, we'll all be watching up there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Four degrees, wind is howling. It's going to start howling here as well, already is, but not at four degrees like it is up there. But I've been watching all the different pre-shows and it's amazing how people are out playing in the snow and in the cold and talking with people from Minnesota. You know, there, there's a thing called Minnesota nice. And people really do believe it, that there's people who really, it's a great spirit in Minnesota, maybe more like Oklahoma. There's Minnesota nice. And you, you see this spirit among the people. They're living in this cold. When I was reading Thomas Friedman's book, it was fascinating. He talks about that because he grew up right outside of Minneapolis. He grew up there in Minnesota. And he talks about the values that were instilled in him as a child. And one of those who made such an impression and instilled the values in him was a man named Hubert Humphrey. You see, Hubert Humphrey was also from Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's where he was mayor. He was mayor of Minneapolis back in the 1930s. It's where he got his start in politics. And when he was mayor, one of the things he noticed was this anti-Semitic spirit in Minneapolis. And so he worked hard to try to confront that and try to pass laws that talked about fair housing for Jews and you can't do this according to religion. And he really became a crusader for rights for Jews, overcoming an anti-Semitic spirit. And it went so well for him there in Minneapolis that that's when he ran for Senate and Hubert Humphrey got elected to the Senate and he became one of the great civil rights leaders of the 1960s trying to fight for the rights of African Americans and Native Americans and speaking up for what is um, civil rights for all people. It became his passion and he became known as this warrior in the Democratic Party fighting for civil rights in the 1960s. You remember he was vice president with Lyndon Johnson. And when Johnson decided not to run for president again, then he got the Democratic nomination. Hubert Humphrey ran for president. Do you remember who his opponent was? Richard Nixon. He and Nixon had a fight, and in the end, they worked. Nixon won by 500,000 votes. At that time, it was the narrowest victory in American history. And they thought they'd never have a, a presidential race that close again. They had no idea that we would one day have hanging chads to decide a presidential race. 
No, no, we were becoming more and more polarized right down the middle. But he was not elected president. It was a bitter defeat. He went home to Minneapolis, got elected to the Senate again, went back to serve in the Senate. What people didn't know was he had cancer. He fought cancer for years. And finally, it was late in 1977 that he came out and told the world that he had cancer and he was dying. He would die in January the 13th, 1978, 40 years ago. That's when he passed away. He was only 66 years old. But when he got closer to death and when he announced that he had cancer, the people in Washington said, come back to Washington Let us come back and celebrate your life. Republicans and Democrats alike, let's go back and remember the 60s and the battles we fought for civil rights and remember a vision for the future. They talked all about it and he said, no, not doing it, not doing it. Muriel, his wife, said, come on, let's go. Not doing it. So his wife, Muriel, called Robert Schuller, their friend out in California who was a minister, and said, would you come talk Hubert into going? And so... Schuler flew out to Minneapolis and came to see his old friend and said, Hubert, you know, you were such a warrior. I mean, you won so many battles and you lost some tough battles. Losing to Nixon was so hard and you had other losses, but you always came back. You came back with strength and fire. How did you do it? He said, Muriel, bring me my book. She brought him a little black book and he began to read through this little black book. Scripture after scripture after scripture that was positive and encouraging. You see, Hubert Humphrey had been raised as a Methodist. He had a vision of what does it mean for all people to be special in the eyes of God. He turned to his faith in those difficult moments, would read these scriptures. And as he's reading them, Schuler said, you could see this fire growing in his eyes and him kind of welling up. And finally he said, Hubert, that's great. Why don't you go back to Washington one last time to talk about all those battles you fought? Caught him off guard. Didn't see it coming. He sat there for a moment thinking and finally he turned to Muriel and said, let's do it. They called Jimmy Carter. A week later, Air Force One was there. Flew him back to Washington. They had the banquets. They had all the speeches. They honored his life and all that he had done and stood for. What is we supposed to be doing in the future? He flew back home. He got back home and he called Robert Schuller and said, Thank you. Thank you for talking me into going. Is there anything that I can do for you? And Schuller said, Yes, there is. I have a friend who's living 20 miles south of here. He's gone into his home, and he is in exile. He needs someone to bring him out. Hubert Humphrey immediately knew who he was talking about. It was Richard Nixon. By then, Nixon had resigned in disgrace, flown out to California. The helicopter landed in his backyard. He went into his home, and he had not been seen out in public again. Schuler went on and said, he needs to come back to life. He has to get back onto the national scene. It has to be a big event for where he comes out. It needs to be hosted by a Democrat and a Democrat that doesn't plan on running for office anytime soon. And Humphrey laughed and he said, I get it. I know what to do. He hung up the phone and he called Richard Nixon and he said, 
the doctors say I have two or three weeks to live. You know that when I die, my body's going to be flown back to Washington and I will lie in a state there in the rotunda. What I'd like to ask of you is, would you come and sit with my wife Muriel and comfort her? And Richard Nixon said, yes, I will. I was a young man, but I can tell you that symbolism wasn't lost on me. That here these two warriors who had done such battle on so many things, to have Richard Nixon sitting there beside Muriel Humphrey, beside Hubert Humphrey's casket, it made such a statement. The disgraced coming back, being invited to sit with the Democrat, oh my goodness. How did that happen? It's easier to do the right thing when you look in the light of eternity. When you look at life through the light of eternity, it's easier to let some of those things in the past go, to do the right thing. Joseph, story that took place more than 3,000 years ago. It was a story about a family that had a happy ending. It's a story worth telling. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.